0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico,
1: And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff.
0: Dean, it's October. It's the spookiest month of the year. What are you doing to celebrate? How are you getting in the mood? Um, what scary movies are you watching to get yourself pumped up for this great <laughs> Halloween season?
1: Oh, man. You know, famously, I don't like scary movies even a little bit. I hate every one of them. I've never seen one and said it was good. Uh, but I did drink <laughs> a cider today. I felt okay about that. Um, the October vibes are here for sure. Uh, I'll probably watch a handful of Halloween TV episodes, uh, of funny shows. That's usually the, my October tradition. Um, what about you, Matt? I know you're a big, uh, spooky movie connoisseur. Um, what's your top three Halloween films? Oh my God.
0: It's so hard to decide. Um, instead of telling you my top three, (laughs) Oh, instead of answering the question that you asked me directly, uh, I'm just gonna tell you what I, I did instead. Um, what I did today instead. Uh, today we watched uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and that's a pretty really? Halloweeny movie. And it's a banger. Dang. That movie is great. No notes. I love it. Um, great claymation. It's, it's spooky. It's fun. Uh, my son loves it a lot. And uh, it's a Christmas movie, I know. But it's actually a Halloween <laughs> movie for us in our house.
1: It's true. It's a good one. And, you know, I walked by a Hot Topic today as I had to walk okay. through them all. And um, they're still making a Nightmare Before Christmas merch. So it is a timeless film. I'm sure that uh, you'll be able to buy those cool Jack Skellington wristbands um, for years to come.
0: You know, let me tell you this, um, that we're just since we're just shooting the breeze. I'll I'll tell you this really quickly on the podcast for, for whatever reason. <laughs> Um so amongst the amongst the youths, the kids, um, there's this like emerging genre of media about the backrooms. Are you familiar with the backrooms, Dean? <laughs> no, no. Oh my god, dude. All right. So I think it's a spin-off of this is just like my amateur read on the on the meme but i think it's a spin off of like the like liminal spaces subreddit on reddit so sure. you know like yeah. um people are always posting pictures of liminal spaces spaces that are like uh mundane but creepy you know um just a just a little a little too spooky for their own good anyways um so that i think like out of that sort of milieu of uh weird content that people like on the internet <laughs> has emerged this thing called the back rooms which is like this uh this mythical sort of like place that uh you can go to if you kind of like uh you know you clip out of reality you uh you mm-hmm, exit the mm-hmm. simulation and uh this is what's behind it right it's like this like spooky um like capitalist hellscape of like an office building you can't escape or like an indoor pool that just kind of goes on forever like it's like <laughs> okay. quality Great. um and anyway, so now there are all these video games around um around the idea of the backrooms. And I don't know, my my son has like absorbed them through like cultural <laughs> osmosis. He's I don't know exactly how he learned about this. I think sometimes we watch like uh we'll watch TikTok videos together or like uh or something, and he'll see them every now and again. Anyways, uh, he's an avid Minecraft. This story is now, I'm realizing, layers and layers <laughs> deep. He's an avid Minecraft player because he's seven. And uh, he saw on the Minecraft store that there is a Backrooms Minecraft mod. Whoa, wild. Yeah. So, of course, we downloaded it because it was like, it, that's like the right amount of spooky for him because it's like, mm-hmm. uh, it's Minecraft. So it's like everything's sort of filtered through the, uh, the safety of everything being like pixels and blocks right, or whatever. Right. So anyways, uh, we downloaded it and we played it for like three hours today because so anyways, it puts you like in this like scary office building. And then there's like this monster that slowly chases you through it. And he thought it was the funniest thing ever. He was really <laughs> into it. So that's, that's been awesome. my that's been my big spook. My big spectacular weekend is getting into the back rooms, the Minecraft back rooms and uh, playing this game. And he's just like. Um, man, the, the sheer terror and delight in his voice when he's like, oh no, the monster is behind us. He was just, he was loving that. <laughs> that was great stuff.
1: That is great, man. Uh, that is probably the level of spooky that I can handle. I think the closest I've gotten is, uh, I did just watch under the banner of heaven, which is not a horror series, but had some spooky murder going on in it. And that is basically my threshold. <laughs> so that's the scale, uh, at which all other media, I guess, has to be judged for me in October.
0: Yeah, I don't blame you. The uh, The murder in that show is particularly bad. I don't like it, but um, it's a great show. Uh, just the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially spooky because, uh, man, are you going to stay a Christian or not? Stay a Mormon or not, Andrew Garfield? <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> Deconstruction
0: is the spookiest thing, if you think about it. <laughs> um, you know, you might be wondering right now, dear listeners, why we're just talking about our, our everyday lives, why we're just shooting the shit about the most boring things you can imagine. And that's because that's what we're talking about this episode. We're talking about our everyday lives. We're talking about living your life. But uh, instead of dragging it on even longer than we have right now, we're going to spice things up a little bit by uh, talking about a recent book that Dean and I both read called The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism by Ulrich Brand and Marcus Faisen uh this book is neat i like it dean do you like it do you not like it can you give me a quick thumbs up or thumbs down
1: i love parts of it there are other parts of it i maybe could take or leave but on the whole sure i think it's got some good some great tools i think that's every verso book uh there are parts that i really (laughs) like and some parts that just didn't need
0: to be said and it was fine (laughs) um the imperial mode of living is a neat book though it was the parts that i like um, because it gives them like really helpful conceptual handles to the unseen and like very mundane ways our lives and the lives of most people in the global North are built off of the back of capitalist imperialism. Dean, you're in the mall today and I'm sure you know probably better than most, right? All of that stuff, it's produced somewhere else. It's produced and shipped through some kind of like big, awful extractivist, you know, mechanism. Uh, <laughs> it can't happen without that for sure. I mean, neither can our whole food system our cars, all of it. It's all it's all imperialism all the way down, this book tells us. Um, and I think there's something, I mean, there's something helpful about that, I think, just as a person living in the world, right? In the global north, um, we have to recognize how our lives are extremely dependent on the whole project of imperialism. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about a lot in this episode. I also think that there's something, like, kind of intuitive about that for Christians. And maybe in a good way and in a bad way, Like Christians already have some kind of um, vague intuitions about the ways that the powers and principalities of the world can like push us into oppressive and sinful situations without us even knowing. But yeah, I think that the the book that uh, I think this book in particular gives us like some materialist ways of thinking about those big ideas um, that that are helpful. Yeah. Um, So this episode, we're gonna talk about living our lives. We're gonna talk about imperialism, and then we're gonna talk about what to do about all of it.
1: Yep, I agree. Uh, I think that's the general maybe utility of the book, uh, especially for Christians on the left, is that it connects with something that a lot of Christians already feel, that um, the world is out to get (laughs) you, which can be, I think, a dangerous narrative in certain evangelical circles. Um, But there's also a sense in, I think, all kinds of Christianity that you can't really escape that there are these kind of structures in the world that are bending your behavior, bending your will, bending your ideas toward, you know, something not so great, something harmful. Maybe is a less uh, theologically loaded way of putting it, um, but something sinful. You know, structures of sin and so on in the world. Uh, right. That that's how liberation theology would talk about it. At least the one, the only one I'm comfortable with, <laughs> um, and. <laughs> sure. uh you know, the the book is really trying to uh, parse that out in its own way, right? Talking through those kinds of issues. Uh, what does it mean to say that the world is built in this imperialist way? And there's a mode of living that comes along with imperialism that we're all sucked into, whether we like it or not. And being able to identify it and talk about it and think through how to resist it is really useful. Um, it's useful, too, because a lot of us probably have some uh, basic sense, if you're on the left, of how you're wrapped up in capitalism as a person living in the global north. But the book does a lot of work to try to parse out like, exactly why and how that is with some real good political storytelling and so on. And I think that's good, too. It gives you maybe uh, some, some better background for understanding what it means to kind of be in those relationships in a global sense.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, Also, one thing about this book I really do like is that it does devote an entire chapter to telling you about how bad cars are. And I like that a lot. (laughs) The book hates cars. The book hates cars. I hate cars. Um, Beep beep. Uh, I want to ride my bike instead. Um, Okay, Dean, start us off. How do we get into this? What's the imperial mode of living? And how is this a helpful concept?
1: Right. Well, you're in luck, Matt, because uh, one... One other great thing about this book is it does have extremely well-named chapters, including one that is just called The Concept of the Imperial Mode of Living. (laughs) Um, Fantastic. Love it when a book just tells you what it wants to tell you. Uh, People should do that more often. Um, So I'll say what they say it is in a minute, but just to set it up a little bit, you know, we've talked about imperialism on this show a bunch of times in different contexts. And I think most of the time when I think about imperialism, I think about it in terms of political economy, which is to say, what are the economic structures that operate in the world that actually, you know, get some wealth sucked out of one part of the world and brought to another one, right? What, what are the kind of economic relationships going on in imperialism? Um, the approach this book takes though, is one of what they call hegemonic analysis that they get from Antonio Gramsci, a wild Italian communist and, uh, hegemonic analysis is really fascinating because it's not like it ignores the political economy part. You have to have that, but it also tries to pull in a way of just understanding how you're wrapped up in it, how everyday people are wrapped up in it. What, what kind of worlds are made possible by those political economies, so that's kind of the, uh, the, the approach that they're introducing. So it's a hegemonic analysis of imperialism. All right, with all that out of the way, here is how they define it. The core idea of the concept is that everyday life in the capitalist centers is essentially made possible by shaping social relations and society nature relations elsewhere. For example, by means of, in principle, unlimited access to labor power and natural resources and sinks, like carbon sinks, on a global scale. The capitalist centers fundamentally depend on the way in which societies elsewhere, and their relation to nature, are organized so that the transfer of the products of often cheap labor and elements of nature from the global south to the economies of the global north is guaranteed. Conversely, the imperial mode of living in the global north structures societies in other places in a decisively hierarchical way. So lots of uh, big sentences here, but the the key is maybe not so hard to understand, which is a a good thing. Uh, The core idea is that our everyday life, if you live in the global north, is determined by all these kind of social relationships um, that benefit the global north, right? Uh, Taking cheap labor out of the south. Uh, structuring whole economies and whole relationships to nature around the world in such a way that the global North benefits from it. And so they're trying to do this hegemonic analysis of that concept. What does that do for us in our our daily lives? I think that is actually super helpful.
0: Yeah, totally. It is super helpful. Um, it made me think, so I was reading this book and then um, I was also reading Ufemi Taiwo's book, Reconsidering Reparations, kind of alongside of it for a, an article I was writing. And uh I don't know. Um because I was reading them because I was reading them both at the same time, I kind of just put them into conversation because that's what you do sometimes with books. But um I think there's a lot of resonance between kind of what's going on in both. Uh Tywo says that uh it's about capitalist accumulation, like at the end of the day, but it's about this like grand scheme type of capitalist accumulation that sets up these whole systems, like, you know, so that they uh so so that, you know, the the capitalist core is sort of like uh benefited in this extremely long-term kind of way and i think that's um another helpful i think perspective to this too right that these are not just like um uh, they're not just things that are like set up quickly these are like historical connections between the north and the south as well overall though i think the hegemonic analysis here is really helpful because you end up seeing the ways that like your common sense is is influenced i think Uh, directly by these types of imperialist modes of living like some things just only make sense to you because uh, because of the you know the whole way that uh, capitalism has set up our entire lives Um, so I don't know a lot of things to wrestle with uh, I think as as we consider our perception of the world and like what it is we're doing and like why we're doing the things we're doing Um, it can it can also be a kind of existential uh, question to consider (laughs)
1: It's true. And what else is helpful about it is uh, they they make a case that you can understand the um, uh, the kind of resurgence of hyper right wing politics or however you want to characterize that through this lens as well. Because one thing that they say is the imperial mode of living is being challenged all over the world for lots of reasons. Some intentionally, right? There are like Uh, states and countries, uh, people, you know, Bolivia, Brazil, maybe, (laughs) maybe this week, we'll see Uh, Venezuela, other uh, countries who are delinking from that imperial mode of living in a big way, right? Like Bolivia famously refused to work with the IMF. That is a pretty big refusal of that, right? So the imperial mode of living is in trouble. And that also means down the road, we could be in trouble too. But also, uh, the imperial mode of living creates all kinds of really wild uh, changes on its own. For example, um, imperialism requires kind of uh, building all these contradictions, right? Like underdeveloping some countries in order to develop these ones. uh, And then it like can't deal with those contradictions or it sells them to people in weird ways. So. For instance, the stream of uh, refugees or migrants coming into the United States is often the result of imperialism. Um, but the people who benefit from imperialism in the United States, who are right-wing folks at least, uh, don't like that, right? So they're <laughs> they're reacting really heavily against the fruits of the kind of order that they're also desperately trying to defend. So the book has this kind of thesis that... Uh, the right is having a resurgence around the whole world, uh, you know, not just in the U.S., in part because the imperial mode of living is is really strained right now under a lot of those contradictions. And there are a lot of folks who want to rush to its defense and and not let it go under. And the book also kind of makes, a, I think, a strong claim that um, it's going to go under whether they want to or not <laughs> but like the way in which that might happen is not predetermined and you know all that to say it's it's kind of causing all these uh morbid symptoms as gramsci would put it and now that we're all kind of in the gramscian mode here so i think that's interesting it's probably not the whole story but it's probably true of uh the right wing in in europe and the united states and canada right there's a fear that um these countries in the west are losing their power Uh, They're losing their role in the global order as uh, China and India and other economies are growing. And so they're digging their heels in a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. You can pretty easily see the way that like climate fascism or something would play into that type of framework. I mean, even uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking about Pakistan and climate reparations, uh, we did briefly talk a little bit about the ways that uh, conservatives in the United States who are concerned about climate change uh, use China as like a scapegoat right to sort of build this right. uh, I mean exactly what we're, what we're talking about here sort of a, a climate fascist or a right-wing like climate reactionary wing or whatever um, but yeah I mean I think that's I think that's right um, the imperial mode of living will probably not go on <laughs> as they would like it to but it is important uh, how we ease our way out of it uh, so we don't <laughs> spiral towards something worse yeah. Um Okay, so the the book is called The Imperial Mode of Living. And you know, there's like this big um on the on the left, especially in like the post-Marxist French left. <laughs> there's like this big history of books that are titled things similar. Um, the one, uh, whenever I think about the title of this book, I always think about the title of this other book, <laughs> uh, called The Revolution <laughs> of Everyday Life by Rule of uh, who is a a French uh anarchist who was like really associated with the situationists uh, in the late 60s and 70s. Um and uh in his book he you know the the whole idea is that we should um because capitalism kind of like interpolates us and uh makes us its subjects in one way or the other um we need to find different ways of living our lives so that we can oppose it right and this book is not altogether different uh, and it's not suggesting something. uh in, in the end there's there's a, a resonance there i think But there's also I think this book is doing something kind of beyond that or is trying to kind of like get around the lifestylist critique of a lot of these things. It's important, I think, to note that up front. Right. Like this book is not about to tell you that, like, you're the problem. And if you change your life in particular, you could change everything else. Like it's not it's not saying that it's not saying that, like, you should become a vegetarian because, like, uh, that will save the world. Uh, but what it is saying is like you you as a person are implicated in, in a particular like mode of life um, that is uh, made possible by imperialist uh, relationships between different countries and that's an important distinction right that it's not necessarily that you need to change your life or die or something or or whatever right it's about uh it's it's about the ways that your life in particular is implicated in all these other um these other big structural problems that uh you by yourself couldn't actually address even if you wanted to
1: yeah and the key there is uh <laughs> Whether you like it or not, that is the structure for your life, right? Uh, So if you're a right-wing person, maybe you kind of are intentionally defending it or whatever. But just by virtue of existing in a Global North economy, you're kind of wrapped up in these, these particular flows of capital, of value, of labor, and so on uh, commodities and all the rest of it that like, you know, you can change your life all you want and you should, I think you should change your life, uh, <laughs> in ways oh, that totally. are m- gentler and kinder and so on. But at the end of the day, you're still going to be propped up by those, uh, imperialist relations.
0: I think that's right. Like, uh, for example, uh, in the past year or so, I've started riding my bike. I think the majority of the time, um, whenever I can ride my bike, I will do it. Because I think that is a kinder and gentler way to live on this big spaceship we call Earth. Uh, but at the same time, I have to recognize that, like my bike, it's electric. By the way, I think that's awesome. I love riding my electric bike around and honking my horn at people, and that's really fun. But I do have to recognize the ways that even my electric bike is cool as it is, and like as countercultural as it is, it is still like only possible because of extractivist industries in <laughs> in Latin America or or in Africa or whatever, right? Like it is cool that I changed my life, but it's definitely not enough to do anything. I think in the the grand scheme of like the imperialist uh economy.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean the bike is a great example, right? Um or like not eating meat, all these other kinds of things that we might do to um pattern our lives in a way that makes sense, but um or or maybe is uh trying to get us out of those imperialist relations as much as we possibly can, but yeah, nevertheless we're we're stuck with it. Um one way that they talk about it is a uh, the sort of dual nature of hegemony and subjectivation, as they call it. So they say uh, hegemonic ideas are widely accepted, secured in socioeconomic, political, and institutional terms, and deeply embedded in people's everyday practices. Uh, so I think that is a big piece of it, right? It's, it's kind of around us um, in all the things that make our lives possible. And they also go on to say a theory of hegemony that attributes great importance to common sense and everyday practices provides an understanding of domination. It simultaneously widens the view of the subjects who subordinate themselves to domination and to the way in which they, or I guess we could say we, <laughs> do this. That is, the processes of of subjectivation through which domination produces and stabilizes itself, but through which it might also be challenged. So lots of big academic jargon there. But what they're really saying is, uh, because we live in these hegemonies, these big... Uh, you know <laughs> sprawling things that suck us into it uh, it turns us into certain kinds of, of people there it makes us certain kinds of subjects uh, but at the same time we could try to maybe recognize those processes of subjectivation and also do our best to see that as a point of, of resistance and kind of changing our subjectivity changing the kinds of people that we are and i think that's also maybe a good way to bring the christianity piece into the conversation right like mm-hmm. Christianity, for better and for worse, is is kind of that like (laughs) it's a it's a big hothouse for growing particular kinds of people, Um, good ones and and not so good ones, Uh, you know, good kinds of practices and bad kinds of practices. Um, In the mid 2000s, when we were both in school, there was kind of a a trend um, in some, I think, pretty conservative christian circles to talk about christianity this way that like it has this kind of formative quality and we've talked about it a lot in the show in the past um, but the idea is that the church is a kind of discipline as opposed to the discipline of the world and i think that conservative way of putting it is not so good but it does kind of hit on something that is true that christianity does create these different processes of making you a certain kind of subject And, you know, some Christianities are kind of hand in hand with the imperial mode of living like they're they exist in order to uh, participate in that imperialist hegemony and kind of make you a good Christian imperialist as well. But I think there's other ways of thinking about how Christianity can kind of interrupt that process of making you an imperialist subject, you know, like it puts you in touch with the poor. It puts you in touch with the global south, with other people in other parts of the world it might maybe, uh, widens your conscience or something like that. And, uh, I think that's a helpful thing to, it, it's, it's something I think about at least when I'm going to mass and participating in, you know, Christian solidarity kind of activities and so on. It's like, this is a version of my faith that's actually trying to short circuit the, the subjectivation processes of the imperial mode of living and maybe create some new ones like to, uh, to make me a different kind of person. Like that's what I'm, sort of going to my faith tradition for in a way is that that counter formation. And I think it's helpful for us to reflect on that intentionally and maybe think through how we can bolster those ways of delinking ourselves from imperialism.
0: Yeah, I agree. This book in the end will have a lot of things to say about like um, rethinking the ways that we think of ourselves as subjects. And that's cool. Um I have a really hard time. I mean, maybe because I am a Christian, uh, but I have a hard time thinking of those types of like practices without thinking of them as like spiritual types of practices i mean maybe not even explicitly religious in every sense but um thinking about yourself in a way that kind of like escapes the orbit of the hegemony of capitalism i think is kind of like inherently a spiritual practice um or at least like a communist one <laughs> or something <laughs> you know um because it because it, it takes some work of like resituating yourself within the grand scheme of humans or like of creation or something. Uh, It's, it's hard to think about like, you know, like why would you care or whatever that, um, that you live an imperialist mode of being or something without, Mm -hmm. uh, without resituating yourself in the world or like, or without like thinking through like why you share some kind of common destiny with like the people in the global South or, or whatever. I don't know. To me, that seems like a pretty spiritual practice. And I think one where, um, Christianity at its best definitely has something to kind of like give us in that area. So um, we'll keep talking about that, I think, at the end of the episode for sure. But uh, a great tip of the hat to it right now. Um, I think maybe a great way to kind of draw some of this out or like to to explain the hegemony piece is to maybe give some examples that might be helpful. Um, and like we said at the top of the episode, this book hates cars and that's cool I like that. I so they have, a chapter, they have a chapter really aptly titled called Imperial Automobility. Um, and I think it draws out a lot of interesting questions. And it gives very few interesting answers, but that's okay. <laughs> it starts off giving us some extremely jarring um, information about SUVs. Let me, tell you about some, let me tell you about SUVs. Okay. In 2017, in almost 34% of the passenger car market consisted of SUV units sold. Globally, 27.85 million new SUVs were sold in 2017, which is a 12.7% increase compared to 2016. In North America, the share of SUVs in the passenger car market rose from 36.4% in 2016 to 39.3% in 2017. In China, it rose from 37% in 2016 to 41.6% in 2017. Okay. So this is an important, um, important factor, uh, or at least that's what the chapter wants us to believe. And I, I do believe it. So SUVs are on the rise, and that's a problem. Um, SUVs are on the rise, and that's a problem because SUVs uh, are more environmentally intensive to make. I mean, it requires more extraction. It requires uh, more exploitative labor power. Uh, you know it requires more fossil fuels honestly i mean like you can't have an suv un- unless it's completely electric without a whole lot of fossil fuels and even if it is electric then maybe the plant that's charging it up runs on coal or whatever i don't know man but like all i'm trying to say here is that suvs are are not a carbon neutral <laughs> kind of thing in the <laughs> world um the the chapter goes on to argue though that the all-terrain vehicle and suv boom Is a great demonstration of the imperial mode of living and its trend toward deepening and universalization. SUVs are extremely resource and emission intensive. And um, the the chapter will kind of go on to say that like the SUV, um, the obsession with SUVs is like uh, a great example of the cat, like the the imperialist sort of subjectivization of of the global north, right? It's like it's characteristic uh, for for a handful of reasons. and, And I'll tell you why. Um but before we get there dean i don't know what what do you hate about cars <laughs> just as a person before we get to why they hate them what's your what's your big problem
1: yeah man I mean, what's their like honestly at the end of the day um they're big they're loud, they're fast, they will kill me if I don't see them um and i don't that's one thing I really don't like about them I don't like their ability to kill me if I don't see them um hundred percent hate that I hate how they yeah. do almost kill me a lot. Huge bummer! They um, they ruin our cities because cities are designed around cars. They uh, they ruin our ecosystems. Um, they make deer confused. Just all all in all, <laughs> uh, an awful blight on the planet. Um, you know, in media theory, there is all kinds of literature about cars. Everybody hates them for all kinds of very weird reasons. Uh but one really fun discussion of cars in uh I wanna say it's either Peter Sloterdijk or Paul Virilio. I can't remember which one, but probably both of them say it. Uh they're talking about like the subjectivity of a car. Like what does it do to you? What what kind of like when you're driving the car, who are you? And the sort of conclusion that comes through is that uh <laughs> the car is like it it sort of um it barricades you against the rest of the world, right? It's the ultimate private sphere in which you're completely disconnected from the public. Uh, You have no relationship to those outside of you. And I think that is just true of my own experience driving a car, right? Like, I'm an angrier person uh, when I drive a car. (laughs) I'm tuned out. Uh, I'm not really sort of invested in the world around me, as opposed to, like, if I'm on the subway or a bus or whatever, um, you know, in a public space that is moving around in public transit, uh, even though I'm getting faster from one place to another. And even though there are, you know, all kinds of challenges with uh, all forms of transportation, I guess, uh, it's a more social way of being. So I think cars, they're bad. They'll, they'll kill you. And they're fundamentally antisocial uh, things.
0: Yeah, man. You know, what I hate about cars is that they'll kill you. And also what I hate about cars the most is that people drive them. I think that's the worst part. <laughs> oh, Agreed. Man, I, whenever I ride my bike um, and I'll like, uh, somebody will nearly kill me because they just like go through a stop sign because they were looking at their phone when they were driving. Mm. It makes me so mad, like irrationally yeah. so. I don't like it. I mean, I think it's, it's bad. pretty rational. I think it is pretty rational. I mean, but I'm like, <laughs> I get really angry. Um, and uh, yeah, it's cool. My son rides in the back and we both yell at cars and then uh, we honk horn at them and uh, they don't even know we're there. So what do they care? Um, man, also, you know what I hate? Sorry, just kind of like going off on a tangent here, but um, I see people just like dropping like trash out their window constantly. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Why would you do mm-hmm. that? Uh, it is because you're, you think of yourself as an individual that nobody could possibly see you. You're uh, you're hidden away in your car. You're inscripted into the the private army of car drivers, and uh, right. no one could possibly uh, uh, bring any reproach upon you. So you just drop your your Big Mac wrapper out your window. Man, I hate it.
1: You okay. know what, uh, one yeah. one kind of thing that we've used in the past on the show to figure out what would Jesus do is could you imagine him doing it? And I can't oh. imagine Jesus driving a car. No, never.
0: No, he driving could ride bike, on a donkey. Yes.
1: He could ride a bike. I could, Christ on a bike, you know? People say it. It's an expression. <laughs> exactly. Yep, I can see him on a subway. I can see him on the bus. I cannot see him behind the wheel of an SUV. No way. No way. Listen, it's if you're good. listening to this podcast in an SUV right now, Sorry, <laughs> but uh, God does want us. To, we are not going to have SUVs in the kingdom of God. That, that's what I, that's what it comes down to for me. And you know what? We should make that a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> it's great.
0: Uh, slap it on the back of your SUV and watch people be confused. Um, OK, so um, Oleg Brand and Marcus Weissin, uh, they say that the SUV driver could be understood as the automotive subjectivity of neoliberal capitalism. A great claim. I love it. The polarization between insecurity and security, as well as between superiority and subalternity Some needless jargon. A contrast <laughs> heightened by driving SUVs on the streets corresponds to a growing social polarization as well to the neoliberal diffusion of market and competition-based mechanisms in all social sectors. Instead of simply corresponding the car and the subjectivity of its driver to embody each other, thanks to its material qualities, the SUV... The SUV intensifies the very social relations shaped by competition and recklessness, of which it's, of which it is a product. It does so by producing the corresponding form of subjectivity. So um, the argument here, I think, is really interesting, right? Um, SUVs uh, are a materialization of a particular type of subject of neoliberal capitalism. Someone who is individual, who is always competing with their neighbors, right? You got to have even a bigger SUV than them. You got to even have a faster one. You have to have an SUV that drives itself or whatever. Um, and also, uh, I do like the phrase, uh, shared by its competition and recklessness of which it pro- is a product, which is great uh, because they are <laughs> reckless. Um, it's interesting because there's this like... Uh, they draw this out kind of throughout the chapter that an SUV is uh, a popular automobile because it seems so much safer than other cars um, mm-hmm. because it's bigger um, and higher off the ground right if somebody else hits you the chances that if you had a big SUV you'd be fine uh, the other car would be wrecked but you would be just okay or um, in the case of like a you know, climate disaster or other kind of natural disaster because your SUV is, uh, it's got all wheel drive and it sits up a little bit higher. You can drive through a big puddle and it would just be okay. Right. <laughs> it's like there's a sense of like, uh, safety in your individualization in there. Um, but something else they point out that's really interesting is that SUVs are safe as long as <laughs> SUVs are safe, but not if everyone else is also driving an SUV. Right um which is pretty funny. So, you know, it's about uh they they embody a sense of like protection um but uh but also like uh extreme haphazard toward other people, which I think is uh it is a great uh explanation of uh of neoliberal capitalism, right? It's you're trying to do something uh good for yourself, you're trying to be a person who like can't be culpable for whatever uh, it will befall you, but like at the end of the day, you're putting everyone at risk because you're trying so hard.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, I think it's helpful that they have a whole chapter basically on the car and what the car symbolizes in, uh, the Imperial mode of living. Um, we could definitely do the same thing with all kinds of other stuff, right? Like, uh, totally. I don't have a, I don't have a car, but I do have a smartphone um I wear clothes, <laughs> right? All kinds of things. Um a co- all the commodities that you can buy, all the things I walked by at the mall today, um, the big hot topic, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas merch. Uh it's all made by folks in other countries for the most part. Um, and uh the the whole point is that the global north is trying to get as much wealth created somewhere else and then funneled into the global north as possible. And I think it's important to kind of see that as the real piece of this as well, right? Just by virtue of, like, if I go to the mall and I buy a new pair of jeans or something, like, at point of sale, if you're a person who's completely normal, doesn't think about any of this kind of stuff, political economy and so on, at that moment, like, you're just buying a new pair of jeans, right? And you're being a regular person. Probably everybody I walked by at the mall had no real kind of thought about it. Um, you know, about what they're buying for the most part. But the fact is, like, as Mark says, there's there are whole stories behind commodities or there's kind of what he calls a, a hidden abode of production, right? That uh, somewhere else there's uh, all these narratives that have to take uh, they have to unfold to get that pair of jeans on the shelf, right? People have to pick the cotton. They have to uh, uh, sew the jeans. They got to ship the jeans. Somebody's got to put the jeans on the shelf, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when you live in the global north, because most of our commodities are filtered to us from the global south, uh, our everyday way of life, our everyday way of being is just uh, whether we like it or not, uh, whether we think about it or not, it is reliant on work being done somewhere else. Right. And uh, it's reliant on the global north even uh, shaping the way that other economies or whole kind of societies work. It, it's uh, we, we shape the everyday lives of other people so that we can live our lives in these particular ways. And I think that's really a, a useful bit of the book, right? Whether it's cars or some other commodity, um, we're kind of like uh, ingratiated into this way of being in a hegemonic way. And isn't that spooky uh, for this yeah. October? <laughs> that is that, that
0: is the spookiest thing I can imagine. Um, a minute ago, you mentioned the other people walking around the the mall, uh, they're normal because they aren't thinking about all these things. I think that's actually, (laughs) I mean, um, while maybe condescending, it is also an interesting and probably helpful way to think about it. Uh, in the opening of this book, uh, the, the authors say that, uh, normality is produced precisely by masking the destruction in which it's rooted. And I think that's actually, uh, the whole point, right? That's, that's, um that's cultural hegemony in a, in a nutshell right nobody thinks of the ways that their pants are made or like the way that society is built around cars or whatever because like that's the whole point of of hegemony right the the question is like stupid if you ask it out loud mm-hmm. <laughs> people will be like why would you bother I don't know sorry they're cars we why are why are cities built in this like this really bonkers way so people can barely walk across the street uh because we all have cars we all have two ton like metal death traps that we have to like shuffle around the, the streets like that's why. <laughs> Duh idiot. But like uh that's the that's the problem, right? That uh we can't even see those things as uh as, as actual questions or uh if, if you bring them up, you're like a weird crank. Um and
1: uh it's true. I'm a weird crank, but I'm also bringing them up and I think it's important. Uh to to maybe and- draw this point Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, well, just one piece about that is like, also, you shouldn't have to think about those things at the end of the day, right? Like, wouldn't it be um, cool if you didn't?
0: If it, yeah, If you like, had sucks. a government that was
1: just like going to do it, just kind of figure it out for you. Exactly. Like, it sucks that you have to think twice about buying a pair of jeans. I hate that. I obviously I'm thinking about this because I do need to buy a new pair of jeans and I'm like <laughs> agonizing over it. I was walking through the mall today being like, dang. I hate how many jeans are in this mall. You know, I don't know if anyone else feels this way. I I find like a lot of extremely weird thoughts come to me when I walk through a mall. Um, I think we mentioned this on a past episode or maybe the walk in. But um, like whenever like a Pixar movie comes out, I'm always like, oh, man, how many like lunchboxes are they going to make from this movie alone? What a weird thing. Uh, Today, when I was walking through the mall, I was trying to think of like how many pairs of jeans are like in the mall today. (laughs) Like, what an extremely weird thing to think about. But, you know, the fact of the matter is we live in an economy that doesn't actually have to have like an efficient answer to that question and uh, doesn't have to ask where they come from or what happens to them when they don't get bought and they, you know, get moved to clearance and nobody buys them on clearance. Like, where do they go? Like all those kinds of things like (laughs) you just don't uh, they don't occur to you or or they shouldn't have to occur to you. And uh, man, I just want to live in a world where I can buy a pair of jeans and not think twice about it. Man, I wish I could remember off the top of my head, but
0: remember that story, um, I think it was in The Guardian a few months ago, but it was about the, like, there's, like, a desert in Chile where all of yeah. the, um, like, the clothes go that don't get, like, um, you know, they don't get through customs into other countries mm-hmm. and how there's just, like, piles of clothes sitting in the desert. Man, yeah. and I was, whenever I'm out somewhere and I do, like, I'm shopping for clothes, I think about how many other, like, how many of the same pairs of pants are sitting out in that Chilean desert. Um, <laughs> for free. For free for free exactly i could go there <laughs> give me a plane ticket um get some great deals on jeans uh to drive this point home though about cars uh not jeans <laughs> um man wouldn't that be wild this chapter was about jeans though Uh, To drive this point (laughs) home about cars, uh, the authors say that the automotive subjectivity considers it natural that children can't play in the streets where moving cars endanger their lives and parked ones take up their space for play. That cyclists are pushed aside into impassable strips of lanes and footpaths and pavements where they come into conflict with pedestrians and are forced to zigzag between advertising pillars, trees, and parking meters. And that pedestrians line up in droves at traffic lights to let a wave of cars go by and during their noise and exhaust fumes without complaint. I love this because it is like maximum cranky. um, But it's also (laughs) like actually a really good point. Like, why do we do this? Like, um, by my house, there is a big, busy street that is awful to walk across. It is uh, four lanes of traffic of people going like 45 miles per hour. And it is like objectively stupid because people live here. (laughs) Man, what are you doing? Why? Like, all these people live in the houses everywhere around this in every direction there are no businesses there's just like only only people living here and like people can't even cross the street i mean there might there actually there's a coffee shop that's down the street and it's like um it gets like so so much little traffic because like people can't actually even park in front of it right there's no there's no mm-hmm. place to park because there's so many cars it's just like what are we doing like this is not a society designed for people it's one designed for cars and it's bad
1: It's true. You know, uh, I think, I don't know, cars are complicated. The politics of them are complicated. Uh, It's very easy to say all this if you live in a city, for example, public transit. It's a lot harder if you're in a rural or remote area. But even there, uh, cars are so weird. Like, um, so I'm from a really small town in Michigan, and now I live in a big city in Canada. And when I moved to the big city, I found myself walking all the time. Um, Like if something is a 30 minute walk away, I just assume I'm going to walk there for the most part. Uh, and apart from that, I'll take transit. So when I go back home for Christmas or holidays or whatever, it's so wild because my family will be like, Oh man, I'm sorry. We don't have a, like a car for you or you don't have a car or whatever. Um, why don't you just hang out at home? And then like, we'll swing by for work. We'll pick you up. We'll like drive you wherever you want to go. And I'm always like, I don't know, like you can walk across probably my entire town in like 30 minutes. So it's like if I want to go to the coffee shop, I'll just walk there. (laughs) It's like not (laughs) a big deal. Uh, But, you know, it just doesn't occur to anybody because everyone just has a car and uh, it it just changes the way that you move through the world. Right. To to kind of become reliant on it in these uh, bizarre sorts of ways. So I don't know all that to say we should do something different. We don't need this. We should. Uh, The chapter does end with some,
0: I mean, not really strongly worded recommendations, but it is just like, uh, we should actually start having questions about like, what does it mean to be mobile in a space? And I think that is probably a pretty good direction to head. You know, Mm -hmm. like I've been saying a lot of mean things about cars and I don't like them. Uh, At the same time, uh, there are people uh, for who cars are, are it. That's the way they're Mm going to get around. Um, And like, fair enough. Like, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but, but also, <laughs> there are people who who definitely could figure out something different if uh, public transit was prioritized or, like, you could ride a bike through a city without being murdered by a car or something. So, I don't know. I think there's a lot of – there are a lot of conversations to have there. Um, and people should have them. Uh, listen to your local bike activists. I'm sure they have a lot to say about
1: it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So cars are bad um, unless you need them. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but I'm going to tell you most of us don't need them. Um, The imperial mode of living. It's a good concept. You might be asking yourself, what is the alternative? What am I supposed to do? And guess what? This book will not tell you the answer to that. Um, It's a bummer. It's a big bummer. it's a huge bummer. It is a classic uh a problem. Also, um, there's some some grab bag politics at the end here. But they do have a good concept uh, that is maybe a good counter concept, which is instead of an imperial mode of living, we should have a solidarity mode. Solidary is how they put it. Mode of living. I like solidarity mode of living better because I just <laughs> say it, I guess, automatically. Yeah. There's no <laughs> um, reason to coin a new term here, I don't think. <laughs> it's probably more grammatically correct to say Solidary but uh, I don't know I've never said it anywhere else in my life Anyway um, uh, It's a good concept <laughs> I'm selling it really well obviously um, <laughs> What they say is uh, The struggles for a solidarity mode of living Focus on the fact that the conditions Considered problematic should be abolished And alternatives should be strengthened Guess what you could probably guess that uh, yeah. right? You should get <laughs> that- <laughs> rid of the bad stuff Do the good stuff yeah <laughs> um, i don't know i think that's a great a great idea i would love
0: to abolish the bad things and do things.
1: <laughs> but the key here is that they want to talk about the term they use as a counter hegemony right um uh if the imperial mode of living is hegemonic it permeates our institutions it permeates our economies our everyday life our habits and so on what we need is a counter hegemony something that can replace all of that and I think I still like this because even though it's maybe short on prescriptions, it does frame things in the right way insofar as it's not about dropping out of society or kind of having a lifestyle change that will change everything else just by virtue of being so saintly or holy or pure or whatever. Uh, but it really emphasizes that, like, this is a hegemony problem. It is a systemic problem, and it's only going to get changed by virtue of changing the, that, that hegemony, that, that system. Uh, by changing our our very way of life, which means to say the conditions that make our lives the way that they are. And I think that is helpful. So instead of an imperial mode of living, we need a, a solidarity mode of living. I'm here for that.
0: Yeah, I think it's good uh, insofar as what you said, right? Um, it's suggesting that we, we think about these things a little bit differently. You know, I, I guess my problem is that, you know, if it's a hegemony problem, then it becomes like this isn't necessarily what the authors are saying, but I think that some people might consider it this way. If you have a hegemony problem, right. And you need to form a cultural, like a, an, an alternative hegemony, you need to somehow, somehow throw the, the, the cultural hegemony into question. That seems like a very intellectual task. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you just need to get like, you just need to get a podcast and start talking to people until they change their mind <laughs> <laughs> or like whatever, you know, you need, you need the, you need means TV, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, or you need to, get a subscription to the monthly review Buy your parents one and they'll change their minds. And that's not true. Um, cultural hegemonies, I think, uh, can only be questioned with like actual organizing. Right. And like really doing something. Um, so I, I guess I want to just make that clear that that is Mm -hmm. what they're saying, not just that you should think differently. Um, and that we should wish the bad things away and we should, you know, wish, wish the good things better, but that like, uh, they're talking about like actually questioning, um, like the real hegemony through organizing and like I mean and intellectual things too. Some yeah. of the things they mention are like, you know, they give a they give a quick a quick pitch for degrowth, which is great. Um, they talk about the ways that um uh you know like people like Bernie Sanders and AOC have like uh drawn out more feelings of dissatisfaction from people, which I think is a pretty positive way to put their impact on politics. Um, I like that actually a lot. You know, Bernie Sanders, uh, not a perfect guy for sure. Not even always uh, a socialist in the way that you want him to be. But if, if nothing else, he has definitely made a whole lot of people. Um, he's given a whole lot of people some language to, to express their dissatisfaction. And that's probably pretty good. Um, Some of the things they talk about are pipeline protests and, you know, we're here for that. That's great. And then also people who are working on like resettling climate refugees and doing that kind of work. I think that's all like cool stuff. So we're not just talking about like thinking something different or whatever. It's not an intellectual exercise. This is like, uh, you know, this is politics stuff.
1: Yeah. One way they put it is they say changes to the imperial mode of living must begin at different points. It's about creating different political rules, social expectations, and general approaches that push back against capitalist expansion and appropriation and make a solidary mode of living possible. Um, And they also say it's important to change kind of our subjectivity. But I like that idea that we have to sort of push back at different points. You know, I used to teach this class on Christianity and prison abolition, and the beginning of the class was really trying to drive home uh, the weight of mass incarceration and like why is it the way that it is and you know there's so many gifted people like um, Angela Davis and Michelle Alexander and others really talking about like uh like prisons are not just places people go they're like ingrained in our culture right there's TV shows like cops, there's uh, law and order all this kind of stuff that makes cops into heroes and criminals into bad guys and you know it's it's like, our whole world's organized in such a way that we think prisons are natural and necessary. And uh, I remember, like, I had a few students always when I would teach that class who would be like, "I'm so overwhelmed by how bad prisons are and how impossible they seem to uproot." And that is probably the right reaction to have. <laughs> it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, But the thing that I would always say and that I do actually believe is the sort of the good news flip side of recognizing that problem is that you can also intervene in the problem of prisons at literally any point and you'll be doing something like you can write a new TV show that doesn't tell that story about cops and robbers or whatever. You know, you can. Um, write letters to people in prison. You can talk to your neighbors about prisons. You can uh, make a piece of art that tells a different story about, uh, you know, wrongs and rights and forgiveness and reconciliation and justice and all that kind of stuff. Right? Like uh, I feel the same way about the Imperial mode of living. Like it is everywhere. And that means that you can intervene at basically any point. Like it is creating different kinds of subjects. that's trying to turn you into a certain kind of person, And uh, every time you refuse that and do something different yourself and also do something different with others, especially uh, that's kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit further. It's not uh, creating revolution. There needs to be a lot more done. But I always kind of see that as like, I guess, something kind of empowering in the short term. You know, you've got to do something. So it's kind of like, well, do anything and (laughs) see how far that gets you. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's instructive, I think. (laughs) Do anything. It couldn't hurt, you might say. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, a great basis for political action. It couldn't hurt.
1: Um, Sometimes it stri- does
0: hurt, but you'll you'll figure true. that out too, and that's important. <laughs> well, then you'll just stop. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. to, to push that point a bit further, the authors say that counter-hegemony against the imperial mode of living thus implies disputes about other rules, political and economic strategies, investments and in control over means of production, And also it means refusing to live certain forms of everyday life or even abstaining from them entirely. The motivation for these changes can include unfulfilled desires and blocked opportunities to leading a fulfilling life. So there's this kind of thing here that I think is interesting because it does like um, it gets up to the the line of doing like lifestyle politics. Like, you know, you could just be a vegan or something, Um, which I'm not, but uh, I'm a vegetarian. That's good enough. Um, But I think the the thing here that's that's interesting is that like. Um, creating a counter hegemony against you know a big idea like uh, neoliberal capitalism, uh, capitalism in general it doesn't have to be neoliberal. <laughs> um, it, you know you can pick up all of these different places to sort of raise disputes. And to me, like okay, like riding a bike in and of itself, right? That's not raising a dispute. That's just like riding your bike, and that's cool. Riding your bike is great, and there's something to be like to celebrate about that. Nothing wrong with riding your bike. And there's lots of like great reasons to do it even if it's not a political thing to do (laughs) um but like uh riding your if you can ride your bike in a way that does dispute the rules of of your of your city of capitalism or uh that raises questions about the way that your city is designed in general that could be cool right like um i think every major city or even every small city has like sort of bicycle lobbies or people who are cyclists and are activists that, that are interested in like um you know, better bike lanes or getting people to stop parking in bike lanes or, or whatever. I think those types of um, activity are really actually pretty important, right? You can find these uh, these different places where people might get into a struggle that really would throw the whole thing into question where it really kind of carried through. And I think, you know, what it means to be a good leftist uh, in those spaces is like agitating people to ask those questions. Like, why is it that we have four lanes of 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 a big street, like in the middle of a place where everyone lives, you know, why can kids barely cross the street to go to to go to school? Like, that's a great question, and I think if people were to answer those questions very honestly, um, and you push them to do so, they'd get some pretty interesting answers. Like, well, I don't know, (laughs) because our city is built around cars, and maybe it shouldn't. Is you know, somewhere you might get. So, um, I think that's kind of a helpful idea when it comes to cultural hegemony, right? Is that like you? we shouldn't think of these things as like lifestyle politics or that that's a that's a dead end. Right. Thinking of them as lifestyle politics is a dead end. But finding the ways that they actually like prod the bigger question is really important. Um, you know, you find these new these new sort of like avenues of question raising and struggle. I think that is uh, some pretty helpful work, actually.
1: Yeah, I think, too, this is maybe a good place to think about churches as really unique places um for all kinds of reasons like churches play major roles in establishing hegemonies usually they uphold them <laughs> that is what they tend to do whether you're a feudal lord or a capitalist boss or whatever you can typically rely on the churches to hold you up but uh churches also have all these really fun and subtle ways of structuring our everyday life like they are the places where we meet other people in community um we learn things about ourselves and others and also we just do weird stuff right like Um, one thing I always think about, one of the weirdest things that an evangelical church I went to in high school did is they would do this big fundraiser where they would like they would have a big like meat banquet and it would just be weird (laughs) meats. And that was the whole thing. So it would be like you can go get regular meat for sure. You can get yourself a cow burger or whatever. But you can also get all the weirdest meats that they could possibly get to northern Michigan by the time of this thing. So you could eat alligators and turtles and kangaroos and whatever else is going on in there. Um, And, uh, you know, it was this whole thing because it's the middle of nowhere in Michigan. People don't ever see that stuff. And so what a great fundraiser and so on. Um, You know, like meat is uh, I'm not like a militant vegetarian. I think uh, it's complicated. Some people probably should eat meat. I don't know. Indigenous people should have a right to eat meat. That's all fine. Um, But at the end of the day, like uh, the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, um, it was revealed that like the Brazilian uh, governmental uh, representatives, they like edited the uh, policy piece of that report to remove the suggestion that people should eat less meat, um, which was a suggestion made by scientists who were like, if you don't want the world to go up in flames, we should eat less meat. Uh, Brazil removed it because meat is uh, a major export out of Brazil for Global North consumption. And, like, Especially it, at McDonald's. In yeah, exactly. And what a completely bizarre thing that like... Uh, this North American appetite for meat is uh, driving um, the production and economy in Brazil, and Brazil's need to rely on that export is also changing UN reports on climate change, right? Like, what a weird kind of feedback loop of bizarre behavior. So all that to say, to bring it back to this weird uh, fundraiser, it's like, I don't know, what what if you, like, went to your church and you were like, let's do a fundraiser, and the challenge is you should make, like, the most delicious vegetarian meal just for fun. Like, you can get so many church ladies to do that, and it would be awesome, and you'd get a bunch of great, like, veggie chilies out of it. It would be so fun, and, uh, and it would be producing a kind of hegemony, right? It would be poking holes in that kind of uh, obsession. You should do the exact opposite of what this evangelical church did, uh, <laughs> figure out how to have this great vegetarian cooking contest. It's just, you know, churches are such unique spaces for, like, people to do something different, to expose each other to different things, to challenge each other, to do different things in mundane ways. And uh, I think they're they're untapped resources when it comes to uh, countering the imperial mode of living. Uh, We should we should tap into them creatively.
0: Oh, you guys want the weird meat? Let me tell you about black bean burgers. (laughs) (laughs) The weirdest meat of all. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, I think there's a lot of different uh, sectors of life that can fall into this kind of category, you know, that is uh, political, but maybe you don't think about it as such or something. I don't know. I'm thinking of, I mean, as a as a vegetarian in particular. Also, not a very militant one either. Um, I was thinking about uh, whenever you whenever you do raise those types of questions with people um, about you know the the ethicalness of what they're eating, um, people don't like to talk about that, and I understand why. I mean, there's a lot of it is complicated, like you said, Dean. Um, but people will often cite, well, you know what about the what about the farm workers that are like uh that are embroiled in like the unethical production of vegetables or something in this country and i think that's a great question like hell yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> um just the other day uh uh farm workers in california they um the the california governor signed a, a bill into law and now um california farm workers can unionize via card check and that's awesome because uh Farm workers in the United States are not covered by the the National Labor Relations Act. So it's like I mean, even that I think is kind of an interesting place to like prod people about the uh, the production of their food. (laughs) I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, it's annoying. People don't like it. But like, I think it's a great question. Like, why are people who um, get that that don't have to be paid a minimum wage? Like, why are they the people that are picking our food? Um, a great question. It's an unsustainable thing. Don't do it. Um, let them yeah. have a union, let them get paid more. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know, great questions to ask.
1: Yeah. And I guess maybe seeing Christianity's contribution so much on this podcast, I think we're always looking for ways of being like, what's the radical Christian interpretation of this or that thing that will kind of draw Christians into the struggle or whatever. And I think we should do that. Um, but it's important to really think through materially what do churches do? What are churches for? What are Christians doing? And so on. And something I really love about my job um, at Development of Peace is we talk a lot about uh, what people do at the parish level. And because it's a Christian solidarity organization, every year we do these campaigns and people kind of bring this educational content and other things into their parishes. And, like, it's a wild thing because if you're a DMP member and you go to your church, like, at some point during the year, someone, me or somebody else, is going to, like, talk to you about i don't know like what our partners are doing in the global south right like resisting um let's say a big canadian mine in peru or something and like you're going to take that information and take it to your church and at the end of mass like you'll get up there and give a spiel about that and like a bunch of people who are completely normal right (laughs) a bunch of people who are ingrained in the imperial mode of living are at least for like five to 10 minutes going to have to think about the fact that Canada has the most minds headquartered in this country out of any other country in the world. And like, where else would they ever hear that? And what other context would that be put in the sort of uh, like milieu of, because we're Christians, we should care about this, right? Like churches are such unique spaces and they're really fertile ground, I think for building that counter hegemony and for really connecting with uh you know the what is what do the moral commitments of our faith call us to in a material way and how can we uh use those communities and spaces to to poke holes in the hegemony of imperialism. I think we need to be more creative about that.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean the Catholics have you and that's great. Um I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that you're doing that. I think also like mainline Protestant Christianity, I think is such a, like is such a fertile ground for this kind of thing because First of all, nobody goes to church. Um, you know, uh, church attendance among, like, mainline Protestant Christianity is is always trending downward because who wants to go to church when you can go to brunch? Uh, especially when Christianity <laughs> is, like, you know, stupid and bad and <laughs> it's made your life awful. But, like, uh, all that to say, like, mainline Protestant churches, like, if you go to one, and uh, especially, like, more, like, liberal denominations and more progressive uh, congregations specifically – if you go to one and you show like an interest in being there like dang you can you can rise to the top so quickly <laughs> and you can like make people mm-hmm. ask these questions and uh i don't know maybe you should uh the young lords did it they occupied a church maybe you could go and uh just go in the vestry you know that's what i'm trying to say here <laughs> <laughs> make people really like right. uh ask these big questions though because uh no one's doing it so you could do it that could be your that could be your thing or not but i'm just saying um you could go to church and it could be a radical thing if you wanted it to be.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so there you have it. That's the assignment. Uh, the imperial mode of living, it's bad. But uh, you can um, contribute to stopping it by going to your church, um, having the big vegetarian chili cook-off for fall, <laughs> and, uh, and I can't wait to see the pictures.
0: That's right. I mean, the vegetarian cook-off, you can go feed people, let homeless people sleep on your steps. Who cares, man? You could do something, though, and and start making all the
1: church people think about it a little bit more. It'd be great. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, I can't wait to hear about your big chili and what you're going to do at your church. To give out these old folks uh, making uh, making these great veggie casseroles and so on. Um, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, you can support us there at two bucks or more and get a great invite to our discord where we talk about all this stuff and more um, and probably share great vegetarian chili recipes, I guess, this fall. Um, you, you can. Know to, also... For sure. Yeah, I got one. Especially after this episode, I think it's going to have to be a thing. Um, uh, let's see. What else do I have to say? Oh, our music is by Amari Armstrong and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up to church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet
0: down by the riverside. They we'll swim with all creation Never get
1: tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind it cold night. But we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.
0: At least I would have